how much is a human life worth? How much is a human life worth? I um, thought about that question this week when I was preparing for this message, and I decided to Google it and see what Google said a human life was worth. Much of the information I found was related to what apparently is something that's termed the monetary value of a statistical life, um, which basically tries to determine the monetary value of a human life. One review article I read that basically surveyed several such articles found that the monetary value of a statistical life was somewhere between six and nine million dollars. I thought that was interesting, but we all know that's not the actual value of a life. There is something that makes human life majestic and glorious and gives it dignity, right? We, under, we all understand you can't actually put a monetary value on human life. There is something that gives it a, an intrinsic worth that's detached from the, whatever monetary value might be accomplished in someone's life through their work and productivity. Human life is worth an infinite amount we can't put a price on. And w- but what is it that gives human life that that dignity, that glory, that worth, so to speak. What it is is not what much of our culture would say it is today. What are some of the things that our culture would say gives human life worth or dignity or value? It's not your individuality or your personality, your physical attributes. It's not your originality, your desire, your sexuality, your accomplishments. None of that is what gives human life, value, and majesty. The majesty in humanity is described in Psalm 8, and it is a real and amazing glory. The majesty or the glory of each human life comes from our Creator God who created us to reflect His majesty. That's what gives human life value, our Creator, who created us in His image. The title of today's message is The Majesty of God in You. The Majesty of God in You. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 8. That's where we're going to be this morning. The title of Psalm 8 reads, To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. Now we know David was the author of this psalm and about 75 of the other psalms. We don't really know exactly what was going on in David's life at this time. There's a lot of speculation, but nothing concrete. We don't really exactly know what the Giddeth is referring to, but we do know that this is a psalm written by David, a song of praise to God. From Psalm 8 this morning, I want us to see the majesty of God's name, the majesty of God's natural creation, and the majesty of God's supreme creation. So let's read the psalm together. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, 
crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So the majesty of God's name. The first and last verse of the psalm were the same. For we can infer that this is a strong point of emphasis for this psalm. I'm going to read verse 1 and 9 again. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And then verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Lord, our Lord. What is David communicating here in this phrase? Look down at your English translation and you will see that the, the, the word Lord and the word, second word Lord are, are a little bit different. The first word Lord is in all capitals, L-O-R-D, all capitals. And the second word Lord just has a capital L with a lowercase o-r-d. Okay? These two English words represent two different Hebrew words. One is the proper name for God, the covenant God of Israel. Now there's a title attributed to God. The capital L-O-R-D represents the name Yahweh. Yahweh is the proper and covenant name for the one true God. It is the name that God identified himself to Moses with when God met him at the burning bush. When God met Moses to tell Moses that God would deliver the children of Israel through Moses from the bondage to Egypt. Moses said, who am I going to tell them has sent me? Who will I tell them you are? And this is what follows. God also said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, all capitals, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent you, sent me to you. That is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh. The self-existent and eternal God, the I am, is Yahweh. When we see David here saying, O Lord, all capitals, he is saying, O Yahweh. I'm going to listen you to listen for a moment to this description by John Piper of what Yahweh communicates about God. This name is majestic in all the earth, O Yahweh our Lord. Yahweh, the absolutely existing one in all the earth. There is no place in all the earth where God is not Yahweh. He is the absolute one. Everywhere, everything depends absolutely on Him. He has no viable competitors anywhere. He is above all things everywhere. He sustains all things everywhere. He is the ground and goal of all things. He is greater and wiser and more beautiful and more wonderful than anything everywhere. All of that is being communicated in the word Lord in our English translation with all capitals. The glory of the name of Yahweh is being exalted here by David. How majestic is your name? How majestic is your name above the heavens? How majestic is your name? 
All glory belongs to His name. I'm just going to read a couple passages. I want you to listen to scriptures that, that display the majesty of God's name, Yahweh. Isaiah says, I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. Jeremiah says, Therefore I will make them to know my power and my might. They shall know that my name is Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh who made the earth, Yahweh who formed it to establish it, Yahweh is his name. Amos says, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and his, founds his vault upon the earth, who calls the waters out of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, Yahweh is his name. Yahweh's name is majestic. And again, David says, oh Yahweh. But he says, oh Yahweh, our Lord. That second word, Lord, with the lowercase o-r-d, is the word Adonai. Adonai is a title used for lords and masters in other contexts. It is a title for God that demonstrates that Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, is indeed the Lord and master of the universe. But notice David's not saying he's just the master or the Lord. But David says he is our Lord. He is our master. He is our sovereign. He's saying that Yahweh is our Adonai. Saying that the God is not just the God, He is our God. How majestic is your name. And the continuation of this thought in verse 1 is, You have set your glory above the heavens. God's glory is above everything because He created everything. Yahweh's name is majestic in all the earth and it is more glorious than anything in heaven or on earth. David opens and closes this psalm by praising the glorious name of Yahweh our Lord. The name of the Lord should move us, as it did David, to praise His majestic and holy name. What comes to your mind when you think about God? What comes to your mind when you think about the Lord? What comes to your mind when you think of Yahweh, the all-creating, self-existent, all-consuming God? What comes to your mind? A.W. Tozer said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to David, David's mind when he thinks about God is how majestic is your name in all the earth. Your glory is beyond everything in heaven and on earth. By way of application this morning, we need to worship and praise the majesty of God's name. Now that can happen in so many different ways. It can be you sitting in your car contemplating the name of God, His majesty. It's here us this morning singing, praying, reading about the majesty of God's name and worshiping it. We should praise His majestic name in our praying, in our singing, in our preaching, and in every aspect of our lives, just as David did. He said, Your glory is above the heavens. We worship the majesty of God's name when we live and speak and work as if we believe that God's glory is indeed above all things. We should revel in the majesty of God's name. That's the majesty of God's name. Next, I want us to see the majesty of God's natural creation. 
Now, you might think to yourself, and rightly so, there's nothing natural about the creation, about God speaking things to existence. Um, and you'd be right. You know, this morning when it was 21 degrees, and several times this morning when it was 21 degrees, uh, you know, I wanted to speak into existence my car to have remote start. Um, it didn't work. Now, I know you, a lot of you would say this is 2022. You know, remote start's been around for 15 years, but my car doesn't have it, so... Um, which in my car is particularly dangerous in the winter because I have um, an exhaust leak. Uh, and so if you don't know what that means, it means that if you're sitting still and you have the defroster on the windshield, the exhaust gets pulled into the defrost. And so the cabin starts filling with carbon monoxide if you're not moving. So my, my drive to work is particularly dangerous because there's one red light that it's about 50-50 whether it's going to be red or not. So if it's green, I'm good because I can just sail on through. But if I have to stop, that carbon monoxide starts coming in. And so it's kind of a you know, a Russian roulette, do I turn it off and let the window defrost and have to look out the window, or do I let the carbon monoxide fill the cabin and hope I don't pass out? It's, uh, it's exciting. Last year for me, COVID was almost deadly, not because I almost died of the disease, but I couldn't smell. So the carbon monoxide, uh, I didn't, you know, I just didn't know. Anyway, creation is not natural. Creation is not natural. Speaking things into existence is not natural, but there is a distinction in the Bible between the creation of the natural world and the creation of mankind. And we'll see that later more. Let's keep reading the psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. I were to come back to verse 2, but right now I want us to look at verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place. When was the time that you looked at creation and were just stunned? Try to think of it. For me and we talked about this a few months ago. It was most recently when I was out in the, in the Colorado Rockies and we were in the mountains 12,000 feet high and looking in every direction was nothing but majestic, massive mountains. It took my breath away. It may be being out on the ocean and just seeing ocean as far as the eye can see in every direction. Or maybe for you it's canyons or sunsets or flowers. But there is real beauty and astounding beauty in creation. And that's here on earth. And we've explored much of the earth. We've climbed the highest mountains. We as humanity have, have explored the depths of the ocean. But David here is not just talking about the earth. He says the moon and the stars which you have set in place. So think for a moment about the, the stars and space. Space, the, the size and breadth of, of space just blows my mind. So we've been to the moon, humans. I mean, it took basically all of human history. We did make it to the moon. The moon is approximately 240,000 miles from the earth, which is a long way. That's impressive. But when we start thinking about the, the, the space around us, the, that's the moon, 240,000 miles. What about our sun, our star? It's 93 million miles away. 
And that's by far the closest star. When we start thinking about the universe in general is when our, our categories just really start blowing up for what, what a distance is. We can't even fathom it. Or numbers, we can't, we can't understand them. Okay, we live in, again, the Milky Way galaxy, what we've called, but there are many, many stars around. How many stars? I did some research this week, and the conservative estimates on the number of stars is 200 billion trillion stars in over 2 trillion galaxies. I mean, I can't even imagine. I think that Star Wars and Marvel and some other sci-fi movies have given us a false sense of how quickly we could get across the universe with the right technology. But that's a very false narrative. Okay? The speed of light is about 180,000 miles per second. Okay? The nearest star would take four years traveling at that speed to get to. The, the galaxy designated as GNZ11 by astronomers, that galaxy is approximately 13.4 billion light years away. 13.4 billion years traveling at the speed of light to get to the farthest galaxy we can see. And that's at the speed of light. The fastest thing man has ever built travels at 244,000 miles an hour. That's 48 quadrillion years to get to GNZ11 among these 200 billion trillion stars. And what does the Bible say about that? It says God spoke that into existence. He just spoke it. Isaiah says, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Can you imagine 200 billion trillion names? I can't. I mean, Phil, Philip, Philemon, Phyllis, Phil with an one L, Phil with an F. Filled with two eyes, like I just can't even imagine for 200 billion trillion. The glory of God in the cosmos is awesome. Now David couldn't know all that we know about space and the universe, but he could look out and see that the universe was far beyond himself, even as the king. The universe is mind-alteringly massive, and it proclaims the majesty of God who spoke it into existence. There is amazing glory in God's created universe, both here on earth and in the universe around us. By way of application here, the vastness and the beauty of creation should move us to worship God. Here in the psalm, immediately David goes immediately to contemplating mankind, but that ultimately leads him back to the refrain at the end of the psalm, which is again, O Lord, how Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I love creation. I love enjoying nature. I love seeing a sunset. I love all those things. But those things, we should not just enjoy them for themselves. They should move us to worship the creator of them. This week, take some time and look up into the sky or look at a sunset, look at the stars, contemplate the depth and the breadth and the beauty of the universe and say, as David did, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. All these things should move us to praise the Creator. And that's the majesty of God in His natural creation.
And third, most importantly, I want us to see the majesty of God in His supreme creation. What would you expect to come after David contemplating the universe and its 200 billion trillion stars? You would expect David to say what? You'd expect him to say, what is man but a tiny infinitesimal speck in this massive universe, utterly insignificant, utterly insignificant in comparison to the vastness of the universe. That's what you would expect, right? That's not what David says. Let's read it. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen. Also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. David's conclusion after looking at the vastness of the heavens was not that man is utterly insignificant. It was utter, exactly the opposite. His conclusion was that God's supreme creation is mankind. God's creation of mankind is peculiar from every other created being. Genesis tells us that human beings were made in the image of God and have eternal souls. Verse 5 of this psalm says that God has made us a little lower than the heavenly beings. There is a little bit of controversy as to what exactly that's referring to, God or angels. But either way, the point is clear. Human beings are not one step up from an ape. They are crowned with glory and honor. They are made with, in the image of God and His likeness. There is no moral comparison between the life of any animal and the life of a human being. One is not just slightly above the other. If you need help comparing, it's not as if like one slightly above the other like Auburn and Alabama. It's like Alabama and Georgia. There is a massive, massive chasm between the two. No, really. But God created each person in His own image with worth and dignity. The psalm tells us he crowned human beings with glory and honor. This is why Christians should have such a high view of human life. Humans are God's supreme creation, and Christians should treat humans as such. Again, as we've mentioned several times, this Sunday is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And this is a Sunday we remember the lamentable decision by the Supreme Court that found that women have the constitutional right to kill the unborn children living inside of them. And since that time, around 62 million unborn children have been murdered in the United States. Now, I want to make sure you know that if you're here this morning and, you, and you've had an abortion, or you listen to this and you've had an abortion, you know someone that's had an abortion. The point of that is not to indict you specifically. We're all murderers. Jesus says that to hate someone is to murder them in your heart. We're all murderers, but there is forgiveness and grace in Jesus. And that's why we're here this morning. Because of the grace of Jesus. But abortion is murder. John Piper said this about abortion. I think it's very accurate. He said, he said this in relation to Psalm 8 specifically. He said, You cannot worship and glorify the majesty of God while treating His supreme creation with murderous contempt. You cannot worship and glorify the majesty of God while treating His supreme creation with murderous contempt. But as, again, Phil said earlier, it's not just about abortion. 
God said he's made every man and woman in his own image and crowned them with glory and honor. God values every human life as precious, and we cannot stand for any injustice against human beings, any injustice against any ethnic or racial group. You can't worship and glorify God while treating any man or woman as an object of your lust. You can't stand for or even stand by the evils of child abuse or sex trafficking or ethnic genocide or any injustice against humanity that God has made in His image. Something, again, we remember specifically on Sanctity of Life Sunday, we should remember all the time. Just a few more quick notes on abortion. This from Matt Chandler. As the church, we must not say of abortion, this is murder, without saying to pregnant women, we will serve you. If we're not doing the former without the latter, then we're not understanding the gospel. We must listen, love, foster, adopt, give money, babysit, donate supplies, mentor young women, and support in whatever way God has equipped us. And I am thankful that we have Lauren who works at Hope Women's Ministry, and Miss Leah and Miss Millie who volunteer there, and for all of us who give money through the, the baby bottles, we do... Um, we are called to help these people, and we, we're thankful for the families that have fostered and adopted in our body. Um, I was just recently made aware of, of a family in a sister church of ours who there was a mom who didn't feel like they could care for the baby, so they adopted the baby so that they wouldn't be aborted. can't just be against abortion. We have to be for women and children. Now let's go back to the text. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Human beings made in the image of God, made to reflect the glory of God, are given dominion. God's commandment to mankind in e from Eden was to subdue the earth and rule over it. Human beings are given the, the mandate to have dominion over creation. I couldn't help but think this week in 2022, there's some people that need to understand that human beings haven't been given dominion over dogs, okay? Like the way that some people's just life completely revolve around their dog, it, it boggles my mind. Specifically, I think about that DoorDash commercial, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a guy sitting in his office and he literally orders DoorDash three times in one shift for his dog. Like I just, I can't even imagine. But we give, we have been given the animals and the earth's natural resources for human flourishing. Now, the dominion mandate is not to exploit the earth. There was certainly an important place for caring about the pollution of our oceans, the contamination of our atmosphere. Those are things that we should care about, according to Psalm 8, but they're not our priority. Our priority is the supreme creation of God, namely mankind. Mankind was created to reflect and relish in the glory of God. God's glory is to be reflected in His supreme creation, mankind, created in His image, according to Genesis, to reflect His glory and rule the earth with justice and righteousness. This is the picture of, of mankind in Psalm 8. And this is just a continuation of Genesis, right? Uh, Phil read it earlier, Genesis 1.28 says, speaking of Adam and Eve, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds, the heavens, every living thing that moves on the earth. God created them in His image to fellowship with Him and display His glory 
by being fruitful and multiplying and ruling the earth with justice and goodness. Psalm 8 is, pointing, is painting a very similar picture. Now Psalm 8 and Genesis 1, that picture, is that what we see today? Like not even close, right? Just a brief glance at history will, will tell us that, show us the utter failure of mankind to live up to Genesis 1 and Psalm 8. From the very beginning to Adam eating the fruit, Cain killing Abel, the adultery and murder of David himself, to more modern times of slavery and the, the gas chambers of the Nazis, the, the mass murder of Stalin and Mao, all of this we see the utter failure of mankind to live up to the creation mandate. Mankind has utterly failed to reflect God's glory in creation. And we really don't even need to com- contemplate the evil of the world to know this, right? We know this in our own lives. Like relationships, even among believers, are, are messy. Marriage can be hard. Raising kids can be hard. I don't have kids, but I was a kid. I know it's hard. Christian friendship is hard because we're all broken and selfish and proud people who are easily hurt. We're sinful people, all of us are, and we feel this in our own lives. We, don't, we often don't feel that we or those around us are crowned with glory and honor the way we read about in Psalm 8. And does man still have dominion over creation? You know, I was thinking this week, I think that two years ago, your average Westerner that didn't live where natural disasters happened, felt like he probably had a pretty good control over his life and well-being. But didn't COVID turn that on its head with billions of people being infected and hundreds of millions of people dying? It really reminded us all how little, little control we have over creation. So David, he wasn't writing this in a vacuum, right? As we saw, he had committed adultery and murder. So how could he write this this picture of mankind in Psalm 8? We read it again as man, the supreme creation of God, being made a little lower than the angels, being crowned with glory and honor, having dominion over creation. What do we see in reality? We see mankind rejecting God and his creation mandate. So how do we reconcile these two things? Well, David couldn't fully understand everything that Psalm 8 meant. But the rest of Scripture helps us understand how we can reconcile these two pictures. One of mankind and what it was meant to be in Genesis and reiterated in Psalms. And one of what mankind has become. So when Adam sinned in the garden, mankind was cursed because of that sin. And that sin brought death. Death to every man and woman. Death and separation from God. The sin... And separation from God is what has so tainted the image that's in Psalm 8. But David did know that God had made promises, promises to Adam, to Moses, to Abraham, and to himself. Promises about blessings to human beings and about restoration of mankind to our designed place through a promised Redeemer. David understood that God's purpose to be glorified in all things, especially in mankind, would be fulfilled through a promised one who would come through David. So Psalm 8 points backward and it points forward. It points back to the creation mandate given to Adam and Eve in the garden to subdue and fill the earth. But now that picture has been lost and we're living here in this sin-cursed world surrounded by evil and malevolence. So David in Psalm 8 
is also pointing forward to a new Adam who would restore this vision of Psalm 8. Now there are numerous, numerous biblical passages that connect to Psalm 8. We're going to just look at Hebrews specifically this morning. So I'm going to be in Hebrews 2 to begin with here to look at what this psalm is foretelling. Hebrews 2 verse 5 to 9 says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. Excuse me. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now putting everything under, in subjection to him, he has left nothing outside his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The scripture clearly shows that the one who would fulfill Psalm 8 is ultimately Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one that fulfilled the vision of Psalm 8. Hebrews helps us understand that there is an already but not yet dimension to Psalm 8. Mankind does have some level of dominion over the creation. And more importantly, God's redeemed are reflecting the glory of God, though imperfectly. But Hebrews tells us again what we all know to be true when we look around. At this present time, we don't see everything in obvious subjection to Jesus. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Again, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Hebrews tells us, yes, we don't see everything in obvious subjection to Jesus now, but that day is coming. This passage in Hebrews also helps us link Psalm 8 to God's redemptive plan. Hebrews says, so that by the grace of God... Jesus might taste death for everyone. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. When Adam sinned, death was the result. And it is this death that has so horrifically marred the image of Psalm 8. Every human being is deserving of judgment for their failure to reflect the glory of God in creation. But Hebrews tells us that Psalm 8 spoke of Jesus who would come as God in human form made in a way and for a time lower than the angels, so that he, by grace, could taste death for everyone, so that he could absorb the wrath of God on the cross and impute his righteousness to us, so that we could again display and reflect the glory of God. The psalm foretells Jesus' coming, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection overcoming death, hell, and the grave overcoming the sin that had so horrifically marred the image of Psalm 8. But Hebrews tells us something else about Jesus. Namely, he is not only the promised Messiah who came to redeem mankind, but that he is God. It was Jesus who was the active agent in the Godhead in creating the universe. And then he took on flesh as the God-man, Jesus Christ, and he came to Bethlehem to redeem mankind, but he will come again to rule mankind. Go back to Hebrews 1. It says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, who he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Again, God created and now upholds the universe through Jesus. He created the world through Jesus. Yet this Jesus came in human form to redeem mankind and he is coming back. The cross of Jesus brought redemption for us. And if you believe in Jesus, he is making you into a majestic reflection of his glory. But their full realization of Jesus' glory in the universe is still yet to come. Hebrews goes on, but, the son of man, but of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Down to verse 10. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Jesus will come again and rule the nations, and he will restore the majesty that was intended for mankind. Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, has defeated death and purchased salvation for all who will believe. He is restoring the vision of Psalm 8, and he has invited you to trust in Jesus so that you can experience the majesty of God and reflect his glory in creation the way you were created to do. And that's the application here. Trust in Jesus. Trust in the true Son of Man and join in His glorious purpose for mankind. David said, O Lord, our Lord. He knew a a promised one was coming, but he didn't know His name. Now we know His name, and His name is Jesus. Will you say, O Jesus, my Lord, and trust in Him? You say, O Jesus, my Lord. If you will, God will crown you as His child, crown you with glory and honor and you will reign with him forever. That's what Psalm 8 is describing. D.A. Carson says of Psalm 8 and its New Testament links, the glorious destiny of humanity, coronation and dominion, which we fail to grasp, is fulfilled for us through Jesus. Now kids specifically, I know there's a lot of kids here this morning. I want to talk to you guys for just a, a minute, a little more specifically. So I'm, and I'm going to go back to verse 2, which I said I was going to come back to. Verse 2 in the Psalm 8 says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, fast forward in Matthew 21, we see Jesus when he was on earth performing miracles and teaching in the temple. And we read that the children were saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David is what the little children were crying out. And the scribes and the chief priests, they said, they were indignant. And they said to Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? You hear what they're saying? They're saying you're, you're the Messiah. You're the promised one. Jesus says, yes. Yes, I do. I hear them and they are right. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Matthew's quoting Psalm 8. The praise of these children silenced the scribes and the priest, and they proclaimed the promised Messiah who would finally defeat all of God's foes. Kids, I want you to know that no matter how old you are, God can use you to build His kingdom and defeat His foes. The psalm teaches that God does have enemies, 
and that as he so chooses, he can use babies and infants to overcome them. How much more can he use you who aren't babies any longer? But this verse has application for all of us. God uses us no matter how feeble or simple or unaccomplished we are for his purposes. This goes along with the theme from 1 Corinthians that reads, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring the things that to bring to nothing things that are. We are a part of God's glorious plan to restore the majesty of humanity to its rightful place. Again, being crowned with glory and honor and reflecting the majesty of God in creation. It's what we're all invited to participate in, no matter how young or old, weak, feeble, or broken we are. The majesty of God's name is that it communicates His glorious nature. The majesty of God's natural creation points us to the majesty of the Creator, and it should move us to worship the Lord whose glory is above the heavens. The majesty in mankind has been ineffably marred by our sin, but Jesus, the true Son of Man, God made flesh, made a way through His life, death, and resurrection for us to join in glorifying the majesty of God by reflecting His majesty as His supreme creation. Psalm 8 closes with the same phrase that began the psalm, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let us say with David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray.